You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the disappearance of Kiplin Davis. Hello, my amazing and wonderful true crime besties, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. Um, first off, I do want to apologize for missing our standing date that we have every Thursday. Um, I was just feeling like super sick, and I wanted to make sure that I did today's episode justice, that I did Kiplin Davis justice by, you know, being 100% well enough to tell her story to you. Um, Ever since I heard about the Kiplin Davis case, I have felt, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I just feel like I felt like some type of way about it. It's kind of hard to explain. Um, She is from Utah. Uh, She had curly red hair. She had bangs, which is honestly something you shouldn't do if you have curly hair. Trust me, because I'm speaking from experience. Um, But I digress. Um, This case is honestly just so tragic and heartbreaking, and I feel like that's probably why it's kind of like always haunted me and been like in the forefront of my brain. Before we dive into today's episode, I did want to hurry real quick and do some housekeeping. Um, Mystery Still Unsolved has an Instagram. If you know, you know, and if you don't, you should. Um, You should go find it and follow me there. Um, It is there that I post pictures and videos of the cases that we cover each week. I will give behind the scenes glimpses and we'll talk more about the case if there's some more to talk about. Um, Sometimes there are things that, I mean, either the episode's running long or I learn about it after the fact. Um, And so I'll go on there and I'll just provide you with extra context. So um, go be a VIP and hit me up on Instagram, okay? Okay. Um, I also have a website. It's www.mysterystillunsolved. There, you can binge my 79 episodes, which, what the actual hell? I literally cannot believe that next week will be 80 episodes. I remember when this, when this podcast was in its infancy, I seriously didn't even think I was going to make it to episode 8. So, this is just, like, incredibly cray-cray to me. Um, I do very much appreciate your support. Thank you for coming back week after week to hang out. Um, If you want to help me out more, you can leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And that way, any true crime misfits, you know, like you and I, uh, won't have to wander in limbo of looking for another bomb, if I do say so myself, true crime podcast. It will just show up like a mirage in the desert. Um, except it will be real. Uh, sorry, I recently watched Aladdin. It's influencing me. I have been influenced. Damn it. I thought I wasn't influenceable. I guess not. All right. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, it's time to really dive in to today's episode. Kiplin Davis was a 15-year-old high school student from Spanish Fork, Utah, or as we say in Utah, if you're a Utah native or local, you say Spanish Fork. 
Um, Kiplin loved school, but her mom, Tamara, believes that what she really loved about school was the social aspect of it, and who can blame her? Um, Kiplin was a member of the drama club. Uh, drama was the thing that she was really most interested and passionate about. Um, Kiplin had, like, a slew of friends, like, lots and lots of friends, and she also had three siblings that she absolutely adored and adored her. Kiplin wanted life to be a party. Hey, uh, she loved getting together with family, friends, and members of her community. Any activity committee that existed, Kiplin wanted to be a part of it. A fellow member of the FOMO community, if I do say so myself, um, Kiplin did not want to miss out on any fun in any social circle which existed in the Spanish Fork area. Uh, The morning of May 2nd was a little bit unusual. Kiplin had set her alarm for 4.30 a.m. <laughs> that just makes me sick just thinking about it. Uh, which she had set for her red-eye driver's ed class. That sounds terrible. Um, she hit the snooze button, which same girl, same, and she didn't go. And I And like I said, I do not blame the girl at all. Because I'm only waking up at 4.30 a.m. if I, like, need to catch a flight. I seriously just don't think it's healthy for my body to be up at that hour. Um, It would seriously just make me feel like barfy the whole day. Um, So Kiplin had hoped that her dad would just like let it slide and would let her skip this class, you know, just this one time. Um, Kiplin's dad, however, came in around 5 o'clock a.m. and said, Kiplin, you need to get up, Um, which obviously cause a little bit of a tiff because Kiplin seems like me. She is not a morning person. But Kiplin did end up getting ready, gathering up all of her things and meeting her mom in the car. Tamara said that when Kiplin got into the car, she could tell that she had been crying. Tamara didn't ask what was wrong. She just kind of assumed that it was because she was upset that she had slept in and now she like wasn't going to be looking her best for the rest of the day. Um, because, you know, she had to get ready in a rush. By the time the two women reached the school, Kiplin had settled down. She was talking and making jokes with her mom again. Tamara handed her some money for lunch, and the two said their goodbyes. At 3.30 p.m., Kiplin's dad returned home from work. Um, Normally, Kiplin was either there or she would be, like, walking in the door any minute, but not today. The parents' hearts skipped a beat when they checked their voicemails in search of a message from Kiplin, because Kiplin had a cell phone, which, but Davis's must have been real bougie and fancy, because I feel like not, I feel like having a cell phone in 1995 was, like, not common. Like, I feel like my parents had one, but I don't feel like teenagers had one yet. Like, it wasn't easily accessible. Anyways, instead of hearing a voicemail from Kiplin, they got a message from the school administrators because Kiplin had not shown up to her fourth and fifth period classes that day. Where had Kiplin gone and why was she still not home? So when Richard, who is Kiplin's dad, checked the voicemail and, you know, heard about all that, he called his wife and he said, Tamara, have you seen Kiplin? Have you heard from her at all? And Tamara said that she hadn't. Eventually, 5 p.m. rolls around and Kiplin still isn't home. And this is very unsettling to the Davises because Kiplin is a routine girl. 
And this was extremely out of her character. She was a very reliable kid. Um, Kiplin's parents began calling Kiplin's friends, and no one had remembered seeing her since lunchtime. Uh, the parents went down to the high school, and there was just, like, no sign of her. All of Kiplin's personal belongings were later found in her locker, which included, like, her purse, her makeup, her dental retainer, and all of her school books. And, okay, forget the books and the retainer because those are obviously things that I can rule out a 15-year-old voluntarily lugging around when they plan on ditching school. But her purse and her makeup? Mm, Guys, I don't know if you put the two and two together, but I was once a 15-year-old girl. And that seems pretty strange to me. Hell, I'm 31 now, and I bet if you know me, you can count on one hand. How many times you've seen me out and about without my purse? Because I take my purse everywhere. I take my purse on hikes. I take my purse when I go kayaking. I mean, you just never know when you're going to need something in there. (laughs) Anyway, if anyone knew anything about what happened to Kiplin, where Kiplin was, where she could be found now, they weren't talking. Um, They decided to go to their church because there had been like a church activity planned there that night, but no, Kiplin wasn't there either. So later on that evening, the Davises decide, you know, I think we need to conclude our little investigation and we need to bring in the big gun. So they called the police for help. An officer did come out to the house. Uh, The Davises wanted to file a missing persons report right away, but they were basically told by the cop who arrived, hey, Kiplin's 15. She's probably just out with her friends or blowing off steam from the argument that you told me happened this morning. Don't worry. She's going to come home. But this did not reassure the family. They were obviously still very worried. Beyond just thinking she's a runaway, the cops did actually put out a nationwide, like, be on the lookout for Kiplin and, like, gave a description of Kiplin. But the Davises didn't want to stop. They couldn't just, like, stay home, waiting around, pacing, They wanted to be active. So they refused to sit idly by and wait for someone to like place a call to them. So they were proactive and they made posters and hung them up all around the town. The flyers didn't really provide any leads though. The Davises started to think the worst. Richard said it was only a few hours into Kiplin's disappearance, but he just knew in his gut and in his bones that something horrible must have happened to Kiplin. He said that he couldn't He just like couldn't shake this nagging feeling that Kiplin was no longer alive. And he and his wife and his other children spent the whole night crying and crying. Determined to prove themselves wrong, though, Tamara continues to call around to all the kids at Kiplin School, all the numbers that she can track down. At some point, she gets on the line with Eli Henson, who is a close friend of Kiplin's. Turns out, Eli says that he saw Kiplin talking to someone a little after lunch, someone that he wasn't too fond of, someone that he didn't really trust, someone by the name of Chris Jepson. Apparently, Chris and Kiplin had snuck into the auditorium and they were like dancing on the stage. That's all right. Dance it up. Um, Eli said he just didn't have a good feeling about Chris's intentions and expressed to the family that he really hoped Kiplin was not getting involved with him because Chris was just like kind of a bad egg. 
Uh, when the Davises glance through Kiplin's journal, hopefully looking for some answers, um, what Eli had said was confirmed through her entries. It turns out Kiplin and Chris may have been more than fellow thespians because Chris also was in the drama club. Um, they might have even been more than friends. In Kiplin's journal, she wrote that she gave Chris a hug and a kiss. It was at this point that the Davises started to follow this promising lead. Kiplin's friend Eli calls the Davises back with some more information. And he, okay, so Eli seems to know a lot, maybe too much. I don't know. But he's seeing a lot of stuff for someone who's supposed to be in class. Anyway, Eli thinks that he might, he might have seen Kiplin leaving school with Chris. Chris was a senior at the school, um, and in the upcoming performance, Kiplin was going to be a prompter for the play, and Chris worked backstage managing the lights. Um, when they were told this by Eli, uh, coupled with, with what they read in Kiplin's journal, they raced across town to confront Chris and see if he had any information that would lead to their daughter. Richard said, quote, of course I wanted to talk to him. That's what led me to this boy's home. I wanted to know where he was. See if maybe Kiplin was with this boy, end quote. When Richard gets to Chris's home, Chris wasn't home, but his sister was. When asked about his her brother's whereabouts, she says that he was at school all day, and then in fact, he's still there um, at drama rehearsal. So Richard gets back in his car and drives to the school. By this time, it's like 10, 1030 at night, and the high school looked completely empty. Like, it didn't seem like there were any type of, like, play practice occurring. Uh, the parking lot was basically empty. Uh, maybe Chris's sister was just confused with dates, or maybe she was covering for him. At 1 o'clock in the morning, the Davises returned to Chris's house. Dang, these parents aren't wasting any time here. These, these parents are awesome. Um, and they saw that a light was actually on in the house. So somebody had to be up. And a big truck was in the driveway that hadn't been there before. And Richard knew this truck all too well because it belonged to a former classmate of Kiplin, a guy by the name of Rucker Leafson. Kiplin was just two months shy of her 16th birthday. And in Utah culture, well, I guess I should more accurately say Mormon culture. <clears throat> 16 marks the age where dating becomes like socially acceptable. Um, however, Kiplin had been or like religiously acceptable, I guess you could say. Um, but Kiplin had been working her parents hard trying to get them to cave about this silly rule. And same girl, same. Um, my parents actually had a rule that I wasn't allowed to date until I was 16. And I think I got my first boyfriend when I was like 15 and a half. I think so. No, I was actually 15. So I had one boyfriend at 15 and then I got a different boyfriend at 15 and a half. Um, so yeah, um, her parents were basically saying like, that's our rule. No dating until 16. And Kiplin would counter like, what's the difference between now and two months from now? Like how much do you think I'm really going to change in those two months? So when Richard saw Rucker's truck in the driveway, he thought, oh, Oh, man, I really hope Kiplin hasn't gotten involved with either of these boys behind our backs. Even though Richard is dying to get in there and see what this late night meeting is all about, he kind of like second guesses himself. He thinks, 
I don't know for sure if she's in there. I don't even know for a fact that she really did hang out with Chris today. He just like wasn't really feeling comfortable disturbing the entire family at such a late hour when he really like didn't have any proof. Um, He felt bad waking the parents up too because it's like one o'clock in the morning and they probably have work tomorrow. So he did end up driving away that night all the way home wondering if he made the right decision. Obviously, police don't have any issue with waking people up at any hour of the day or night if it means saving a life that is possibly in danger. But you have to remember that Kiplin was missing for less than a day at this point, and the Davises did not have the police's full support and assistance at this time. They basically had told them to leave it alone, and they were just kind of carrying on their own investigation. The next morning at 7.30, Officer Warner, who was the Spanish Fork High School resource officer, arrives to school and checks his voicemail. He hears about like a half a dozen messages from Kiplin's parents, and he takes them very, very seriously. You know, like about as serious as the police should have taken from the beginning. But I digress. He goes into every single classroom and talks to the students about the seriousness of Kiplin's disappearance. He tells them, even if you think sharing what you know might possibly get Kiplin in trouble or yourself or someone you know in trouble, you need to tell us because we'd rather kids just like get into trouble than something much worse. Um, He said that he told them, quote, if you heard, saw, felt, dreamed up something that could help them find out what happened to Kiplin. Talk to me. I want to know what that is, end quote. Officer Warner said he was pretty confident that whatever had happened, other students at the school were definitely involved or knew about it. But he wasn't holding his breath that a student would actually come forward. He knew that kids this age looked out for each other and would justify to themselves not telling anybody anything because they didn't want to be considered a snitch. Officer Warner felt Chris Jepson was probably involved. Um, Due to working at the school full-time and hearing and seeing certain things around campus, he kind of already had, like, the inside scoop on Chris. He said Chris, he wasn't a great student. Uh, He missed school a lot. He liked to slough. Um, Officer Warner decides to pull Chris out of his history class and ask him some questions one-on-one. And Chris doesn't seem at all nervous or anxious by any of these questions. He admits to skipping fourth period and dancing with Kiplin on the stage, but he said that he was actually back in class by fifth period. When asked what he did after school, Chris claims he spent all afternoon and evening setting up the auditorium for the class play that was coming up. He says that he actually often spends late nights at the school because there just simply isn't enough time to get things done during the school day. Chris actually said he had been given keys by the drama teacher so that he could actually come and go into the school as he pleased. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Let's give kids to a high school student, to one of the troubled kids who, like, skips class all the time. I can't imagine anything going awry there. Um, I'm telling you, the 80s and 90s, people were just so incredibly naive. <laughs> I feel like this would never, ever, ever, ever happen now. Chris said he stayed at the school until 11 p.m. that night and that he was even visited by some other classmates that could vouch for him. Fellow seniors, Timmy Olson and Rucker Leafson. Yeah, the dude who owned the truck in Chris's driveway that was there at 1 a.m. the night of Kiplin's disappearance. But remember, 
Kiplin's dad said that he went by the school around 10 and it appeared no one was there. There were like no lights on by what he could tell from outside and there were like no cars or trucks in the parking lot either. Did they just catch him in a lie or is it possible Rucker came later on in the night to give Chris a ride home because he like didn't have access to a car? With no proof that anything horrible even happened to Kiplin because like they hadn't found a body or anything, they can't really do anything other than just take Chris's statement. Still, police want to get in touch with Rucker and Tim and see if their stories will corroborate with the one that Chris is telling. Maybe they could catch the boys in a lie if they could get to them soon enough before they're able to like get together and hash out all the phony details. So they bring the boys in. Rucker and Tim said that they had come to visit Chris and they kind of like threw a football around for a little while and then they took Chris home. So the police keep their eyes on the trio, knowing that they don't have any substantial evidence to disclaim what they said is either true or untrue. Next, they set their sights on Brandon Meyer. He was one of Kiplin's friends, and it was known by pretty much the entire school that he had a huge, big, fat, elephant-sized crush on Kiplin. When police start, you know, asking around, they learn that the day that Kiplin goes missing... Brandon attempted to take his crush to the next level. He wanted to take Kiplin out on a date that very Friday night. So, like, I think it was Tuesday when she disappeared. So, in, like, three days. And as it turns out, the feeling might, maybe, was mutual. When Officer Warner spoke to some of Kiplin's friends, they told him that Kiplin did kind of have like a little eensy meensy crush on Brandon. Um, one friend said that she felt like the two were kind of like on a path that might result in them becoming like boyfriend and girlfriend. All right. All right. So a lot of plot lines are going on here. So we've got Kiplin, who seems to kind of like be into two guys. And these two guys seem to be into her as well. Um, did she just like leave school with Chris and like Chris did something to her? Did she hang out with Brandon behind her parents' backs and he's responsible? Or was this possibly like some sort of like sinister love triangle where like one of the boys got upset when he found out that she was hanging out with the other boy? The motive could be anything. It could be jealousy by either boy at this point. We just don't know. While the sergeant was going from optimistic too bleak, he still wasn't ready to give on, give up on Kiplin. Now Chief Adams says, you don't want to go ahead and say, you know, we're looking for a body. Um, he says that there's always hope that she's going to come back home alive and safe, but the longer no one has seen or heard from Kiplin, the smaller the chances of that re reality coming to fruition. At that point, uh, Chief had been on the force for about 10 years. So this was not his first rodeo. He knew what Kiplin's odds were. Okay, so now things get a little bit shaky because people are saying that the day she went missing, Brandon asked her out on a date for that upcoming Friday, but her parents and some of her other friends say that this was like a week or so before she disappeared because Tamara and Richard remember Kiplin approaching them and asking them if she could go on a date with Brandon. Tamara said that she didn't know who Brandon was, and plus, Kiplin wasn't 16 yet. Kiplin argued that she was almost 16, so what's the difference? And Richard said, well, the thing is, that's our rule, so you can't go on a date with this Brandon character until you're 16. You're just going to have to wait 60 days. 
Kiplin had actually gotten into a little bit of trouble with her parents for being so upset and talking back to them about about Brandon and that conversation. Then the next day, Brandon approached Kiplin and broke off the date. He said that another girl he had like casually been seeing and that like maybe had gone on a dance with like gone to a dance with her or something had found out that Brandon had asked Kiplin on a date and now she was mad at him. So he wasn't going to be able to take Kiplin out after all. This obviously made Kiplin really sad and upset, but some wondered if Brandon might have secretly taken Kiplin on a date behind this other girl's back and behind Kiplin's parents' backs. When police decide to really look into Brandon, they do find an interesting coincidence when it comes to his attendance records. Turns out Brandon also missed fourth and fifth period the day that he went missing. Also, it turns out the other girl, the one that was pissed that he asked Kiplin on a date, helped out in the office and he had asked her to change the attendance records to indicate that he was there at school for fourth and fifth periods. Um, This girl like did so unsuccessfully, probably because she didn't really know what she was doing. And like it never got changed to say that he was in class. So he was actually marked absent. This is interesting to me because not only is it very curious that he missed fourth and fifth period, but he also attempted to cover it up. Hmm. Why would he do that? Um, Is it because he spent that time hurting Kiplin and needed an alibi? Is that right, Brand Dummy? Hmm? 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 Uh, to find out why Brand Dummy uh, tried to cover his tracks, uh, police go over to his home. They ask Brandon, hey, why were you missing fourth and fifth period? And he says that he did go to a little bit of fourth period. And then he began to look for Kiplin to apologize to her because he felt like just so terrible about how sad she was that they had to cancel their date. And he said that he was looking all over for her and he couldn't find her. So then he just decided to, to leave school. Then police asked Brandon what he did the rest of the day. And Brandon says that he just drove home, but that his tire actually popped on the way and that he had to call a friend to help him fix it. When police talked to this friend, this friend has no idea what Brandon is talking about. He said he did help Brandon fix a tire recently, but it wasn't the day Kiplin went missing. It had been a few days before. Even confronted with this information, Brandon continues to stick to his story. Police think Brandon might have been involved, but they don't have any evidence. So they just have to take his statement and let him go. Three weeks pass and still no sign of Kiplin. Police and her parents decide to hold a press conference begging the public for help. They were hoping someone would come forward with information, but that wasn't the only reason for the press conference. Um, They were also announcing that the FBI would be joining the investigation, the real big guns, uh, because they knew that they needed extra hands if they were ever going to solve this case. Richard said once the FBI was brought in, the whole investigation kind of began to roll. They knew that there was no good reason for Kiplin to still be missing. They knew deep down in their bones that something drastically terrible and wrong must have happened to her. But what? And where was she? The FBI were told about Chris, Timmy, and Rucker, and Brandon. Um, They were told about the love saga between Brandon, Kiplin, and some other girl. But with no body and no proof that Kiplin had even been a victim of foul play, 
Weeks and then months slowly begin to pass. A year after Kiplin's disappearance, they were still getting leads here and there, but these leads never really led anywhere. Richard and Tamara were distraught. They wanted closure, obviously. 18 months after Kiplin's disappearance, an unexpected visitor rang the Davises' doorbell. Ding dong! Who was it? Uh, Chris Jepson. When Richard answers the door, Chris says, basically, Hello, sir. I just want to come here to get something off my chest that's been weighing on me. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. What is he going to say? What is he going to say? Um, he then continues to say, I just want you to know that I did not have anything to do with Kiplin's disappearance. That's, that's pretty anticlimactic, Chris. Uh, Richard finds Chris's statement odd and weirdly timed. He hadn't seen the boy in almost a year, and from what he was told by investigators, like no one had really recently put any heat under Chris that might have led to this like out-of-the-blue statement. So dad puts the pressure right back on Chris because he just like doesn't believe him one little bit and flat out asks him, did you do something to Kiplin? Kiplin or Chris vehemently says no, but Richard doesn't back down. He says, if you know something, you're not going to be able to keep it inside forever. So why don't you just stop wasting everybody's time and tell me now? But he says, no, he didn't do anything. Richard reports the incidents to police, and the police agree that it's really weird and odd, so they decide to put the pressure on Chris themselves, and they also rope in Timmy and Rucker again. The boys are so adamant about their uninvolvement that they tell police that they want to subject themselves to a polygraph test, like they come up with this idea themselves. Chris goes first, and the results aren't what detectives were expecting because they show that Chris was not being deceptive, so he wasn't lying. Police have no choice but to let him go. Timmy goes next, and this is where Shisha hits the fan. Okay, so before they even perform the polygraph test, they ask Timmy to basically write down a statement about all of the activities that he had partaken in the day that Kiblin went missing, and Timmy drops a bombshell when he reveals in his written statement, something he had never previously mentioned before. He writes on this piece of paper that he did, in fact, see Kiplin the afternoon that she went missing. She was in Spanish Fort Canyon, where he and Rucker had taken her. Dun, dun, dun! WTF, man! What? Uh, He writes on this piece of paper that he stayed in the car or the truck and he watched Kiplin and Rucker walk over this hillside in Spanish Fort Canyon. And then later, Rucker came back alone. When Timmy pressed Rucker about Kiplin's whereabouts, Rucker told Timmy, don't worry about it, ma'am. Detectives are stunned by Timmy's accusation. When Timmy is pressed for more details, he quickly lawyers up. He actually throws his written statement in the trash, too. Police believe that Timmy might have realized that he dug himself a hole that might be a little bit too deep. Uh, Now the truth was coming out like a thread being pulled from a tapestry that's unraveling. And now him or his friend or both of them were going to probably get in trouble. Um, While it is a piece of the puzzle... It's not the missing piece of the puzzle because they needed more hard, concrete evidence. 
the one thing that was really making this case difficult what that was that there was still no body. There was still no DNA evidence. There was still no proof to show that Kiplin was even dead and hadn't just run away. After Timmy leaves, they bring in Rucker, who swears up and down. He's just, no, Timmy made it up. That never happened. Um, he takes the same polygraph test that the other boys took, and he also passes. So police are back to square one. The Davis family were convinced that there had to be some truth in what Timmy had said. So the very next morning, they and the police go to Spanish Fort Canyon with scent pups. Love the pups. And they hoped to track down Kiplin this way. They spent a significant amount of time there. They dug up a few areas and there was just nothing. At this point, it's been four years and Kiplin's dad had a headstone commissioned. He knew that Kiplin's chances of survival were slim to none. It also provided the family with a place to go and visit her, even though they didn't really know where she was. But he still hadn't given up hope. He still was just as dedicated to bringing Kiplin home. In 2002, Richard learns of a similar case that happened um, in uh, Salt Lake City, a case that I think a lot of you will be familiar with. It was the abduction of Elizabeth Smart. And Richard, I don't know if he was like enraged or angered, but he definitely felt that his daughter deserved the same judicial and media attention that Elizabeth Smart was getting. Uh, Richard was hopeful because Elizabeth Smart had been returned home alive, even after like months of her being missing. Richard hoped that the U.S. Attorney General and the General of Utah State and he that they could help him. And so he wrote a letter basically demanding that a grand jury help them find probable cause and indict the boys that he believed had something to do with his daughter's death. Okay, so if you lie to a police officer, obviously, like, that's no bueno. Um, you're probably going to get in a little bit of trouble for that. But Richard knew that if the boys were put on the stand at a grand jury and they lied to that grand jury, they would be like in some super duper deep dog doo-doo. No, more than dog doo-doo. Think like, have you guys ever watched Jurassic Park when like Dr. Sadler is like elbow deep in triceratops poop? Yeah, more like that kind of doo-doo. Police and parents believe that something bad happened to Kiplin up in Spanish Fork. Richard says deep in his heart he believes that at least two of the boys were directly involved in the actual murder and that the third boy might have been brought in after the fact to help with the cover-up as an accessory. He admits, you know, sure, he could be wrong, but that's just like his gut instinct. The assistant attorney general approves the request and they begin a grand jury investigation. And this process is not like what you see on Law & Order these kinds of investigations often take years. Um, they send subpoenas to hundreds and hundreds of people and bring each one of them in for questioning. With all witnesses being informed of the risk of being charged with perjury and seriously facing jail time, if they do not answer these questions truthfully, um, a lot of secrets start bubbling to the surface in this teeny tiny Spanish Fork town. Some silly secrets but some are more sinister and gruesome. By this time, all the boys are grown-up men, and they, like, have families of their own. They're, like, in their late 20s. Um, one woman who was questioned claimed that she witnessed a 28-year-old Rucker threaten Timmy for dropping his name in that polygraph confession almost 11 years prior. 
Um, they said that they heard him tell Timmy that he better not ever say anything like that ever again. Chris Jepson's ex-wife said that around the time Rucker threatened Timmy, Chris said something to her that like seriously made her skin crawl and the hair on the back of her neck stand up on end. She claims that one night they were watching a movie together and it was a movie called So I Married an Axe Murderer. And she playfully asked him like, what's the worst thing that you've ever done? And he replies, what if I told you I killed Keplin Davis? She like totally withdraws from her husband in disgust and asks like, why would you even say something like that? Even as a joke, like that's not funny. And he says, oh, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They also learn that shortly after Kiplin's disappearance, a news segment came up on the TV during a party and Timmy Olsen saw that it was about Kiplin Davis and he confessed that he had killed her and knew exactly where her body was. There were two witnesses that claimed that story to the grand jury. The grand jury and the parents felt Timmy Olsen was to blame, but they still had no, like a giant hole in their case. There's still no body. There was still no witness or first person account that was reliable enough. Um, each man continued to maintain their innocence. Rucker and Chris didn't have very many witness accounts that proved that they were lying, but Timmy did. So he was charged with 15 counts of perjury and was found guilty for each and every one of those counts. And he had, or he was sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison. Rucker and Chris, they got off easy, but don't get it twisted. They didn't just like gallop into the sunset together, holding hands and like riding a horse bareback. No, Chris received five years for perjury and Rucker received four. Rucker and Timmy were also charged with first-degree murder. The assistant attorney general believes that there was evidence that the two men were definitely involved. He believes that Rucker may have actually taken part in the murder itself, which is why Timmy said that all those years ago, and that Chris probably didn't actually participate in the murder, but he was either an accessory to lure Kiplin out of school and into the hands of these sadistic little twats, or that he helped cover it up after the fact. In 2009, Chris pled no contest and received a reduced charge of obstruction of justice, maintaining that he had nothing to do with Kiplin's death, and the judge accepted his plea. In February 2011, Timmy startles everyone when he accepts full responsibility for being present at the murder. He still claims he didn't do it. He just claims that he witnessed it. He claims that he saw an individual knock her down and hit her on the head with a rock. The individual then stood on her body and hit her again in the head with a rock. He even indicated later that they returned to the scene of the crime and that they moved Kiplin to a second location and buried her there. Even though Timmy is willing to admit all of that, provide all the gruesome details, he refuses to name the individual and he refuses to disclose the location of where Kiplin was buried. Apparently, Richard Davis went down to the jail and spoke with Timmy himself. He said, quote, if you tell me where my Kiplin is, I promise to be your biggest advocate. I will do anything necessary to get you out of here. I'll ask the system to be lenient on you. I will show up to for your parole hearings and tell them that I think that you've changed. But please, you've got to tell me where she is so I can bring her home. But Timmy wouldn't say. 
For admitting to his role in the murder, he received 15 years um, concurrently with those perjury charges, which means he'll likely only spend 10 to 15 years in prison. The mystery of this crime is not only who really killed Kiplin. Um, was it just one of these boys or was it all three of them? Was it Brandon who like was trying to cover up his tracks? Like, I feel like we should have spent a little bit more time researching Brandon. Maybe they did behind the scenes, but I didn't really get very much information about it. Um, but also how was she killed and where is she now? The most devastating part of this whole story case is that during an interview with Deseret News, Richard Davis and Tamara Davis claimed that whenever one of their children um, were outside of their home, when they were like growing up and, and raising their children, that they would leave the porch light on for them. Since the day Kiplin went missing, the Davises have left their porch light on. The Davises have never moved out of their home, and so their porch light remains turned on. A beautifully haunting gesture and symbol that their beloved Kiplin has still not returned to them. The light has been on for 27 years, and Richard Davis ensures you that it will stay on until Kiplin comes home. Thank you all so much for joining me today. I'm so curious to know like your thoughts about this case. Like, Do you think it was Brandon? Do you think it was Timmy? Do you think it was Chris? Do you think it was Brandon? Do you think it was Eli? Eli knew a lot of information. I'm just putting that out there. Like, did we spend any time researching Eli? Because he was like, oh, 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 yeah. Um, I saw them dancing together on the stage. And then he like calls back later and he's like, oh, oh, yeah. And I'm pretty sure I saw them leave school. I don't know. I feel like we should we should get into Eli's business. Hopefully they did. Um, but I appreciate you guys coming. So tell me what you guys think. I appreciate you guys coming back here week after week after week. And I will post some pictures on my Instagram post at mystery still unsolved. So if you're not already following me there, well, you should, um, you're seriously missing out your loss, but seriously, you should follow me there. And also don't forget that you can always binge all 79 of my episodes at my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. You can also listen and continue to listen to my podcast on whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. But I know sometimes Apple and Spotify, they can glitch. They can be down for a day. They can be down for a couple of hours. And I get, I often get panic messages from listeners all the time saying that, you know, I'm trying to listen to this episode somewhere, but it's not playing and I need it to play. So if that ever happens to you, please don't panic. Just go to my website www.mysterystillunsolved.com. We've got your back over there. And if you get a minute, if you could, please write a review of my podcast. Help people find me so that they can hang out with us. Um, Tell a true crime loving friend or family member about me. But I mean, don't feel like you need to limit it to family and friends. No, no. Tell your enemy, your nemesis, your kid's soccer coach, your phlebotomist, your florist while you are pre-ordering those Mother's Day flowers. Hint, hint. But seriously, though, don't forget Mother's Day is coming up. Um, I got your back. Uh, but do you want to know the best way to support this podcast? Of course you do. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?